Welcome to SpotCast, your single point of contact for the service management and support industry brought to you by HDI, where service management and support professionals belong. I'm your host for SpotCast, Roy Atkinson. Episode one of SpotCast is an interview with Stuart Rance. Stuart is a consultant, trainer, and author, and is an expert in IT service management and information security management. He divides his time roughly equally between helping clients to improve their IT and security, creating and delivering training courses, and writing books, blogs, and other content for a wide range of clients. He was an author for ITIL Practitioner, Resilia Cyber Resilience Best Practice, and ITIL Service Transition, and he's currently helping write the next release of ITIL, which will be published early in 2019. Stuart is Chief Examiner for Resilia and an Examiner for ITIL. Stuart blogs at OptimalServiceManagement.com and elsewhere. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today, Stuart. There's been quite a bit of conversation online about this of late. There's a perception in the industry that IT service management is by nature bureaucratic and restrictive. You think so? And if not, why has that perception persisted? I certainly think it can be. Um... And we both know that it shouldn't be. And why does it happen? I don't know. I think you have to look back in history. We used to run IT as a technology play. Um, We had computers and we had software and we joined them together and we had techies who knew. And it was all great stuff, but we used to run into incidents that we managed poorly we never investigated problems we were you know there were a lot of things so what did we do we introduced processes what back in the 80s and we started doing formal incident management and change management and release management and all these other things that ITIL got to be well known for and sometimes people took those things and overrate them and sometimes we had organizations where the people who were the very formal bureaucratic process people, ended up in charge. And that led to a situation where we often didn't get the balance right. And then since then, we've had, I think, increasing complexity of the IT solutions that we develop and deliver and support. And that's led to more need for less rigorous, regimented, documented process approaches for doing a lot of the things that we need to do. And some organizations haven't caught up with that. We still need the processes for when they're appropriate, but we need them to be flexible and we need a lot more systems thinking rather than process thinking. Actually, I'm reading a book now that I ran across called Simple Rules. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but no. it talks about how... how for example, trauma doctors are able to make split-second decisions that affect people's lives dramatically because the rules that they operate by are very simple. When they're faced with a complex situation, the approach to that is a set of simple rules that enable them to act in certain ways because that's how they're guided by those simple rules. So it makes perfect sense. 
And they probably also have the knowledge and the wisdom and the experience to know when not to apply those rules. Absolutely so. And and that's when the rules change and, and the guidelines are bent uh, or uh, renewed. And you mentioned, you, you said a very interesting phrase to me, and it's, you talked about getting the balance right. And, and I want to come back to that uh, with relation to DevOps. Right now, it seems that DevOps has been leaning very heavily on the development side and not so much on the operations side. And uh, getting the balance right is important there as well. Would you agree with any or all of that? To a limited extent. And the, the limitation, I would add, is that the reason that DevOps is largely on the development side and not the operational side is not the fault of the people doing DevOps who come from a development background is the fault of the people not doing it who come from an operational background. <laughs> so, you know, the ideas of DevOps, you know, the, 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 the stuff around comms, culture, automation, lean, measurement, sharing, why are operational teams not picking that up? The three ways, the flow, the feedback, the experiment and learning, why are we not picking that up in on the operational side, because we think that's them. And so I don't think this is because DevOps people focus on dev. I think it's because ops people don't pick up the ideas. Let me give you a simple example. I've run a workshop on change management a few times now, and I always start the same way. I break the room into groups of about four, and I say to each group, write down three or four bullet points of why you do change management, what it's for, what you're trying to achieve. And I know what's going to happen because it reliably happens every time because when they finish and I get them to share all their bullet points about what change management is for, I say to them, I can give you a very, very simple process that will meet every single need that you have just written down. And that is to freeze all change forever because none of them ever writes down the purpose of change management is to facilitate the rate of change that the customers need to run their business. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. And, and, and do the light bulbs start to go on when you start discussing that point? They start to. I think it's going to be a long journey. Mm -hmm. I think change management is the one area where the message about bureaucracy and getting in the way and not helping comes out the most often and i think it's because of this very old-fashioned we have a cab meeting once a week and if you want to make a change you've got to submit it two days before the cab meeting and then a group of people who don't understand the technology will sit around the table and talk about it yeah i think that's an unfortunate stereotype of change management that's also the collision point in my estimation most heavily the collision point between DevOps and IT service management. DevOps people look at you know the traditional cab and say, we're not going to do that. And absolutely, I'm not saying we should completely get rid of those cabs. In organizations I'm working with, I'm suggesting there may be one or two changes a month that need that kind of discussion. Yeah, and, and it's all a matter of risk to the business organization, is it not? It's a matter of levels of risk, requirement for flow, requirement for speed, understanding of what mitigation you've already got in place. I've seen a huge change in configuration management that a lot of 
traditional service management people don't get. Where configuration management used to be, you collect information about how things are configured and then you run occasional audits to see if they're still configured correctly. Many organizations have now moved to, you update the configuration data and that drives the actual thing to be configured correctly. So configuration management is no longer about collecting information and audits. It's more about driving change. And change management, if done right, is about setting the cadence for change, matching that to the organization's needs, etc. It's a built-in thing, not a bolt-on thing. Exactly. Yeah. And if you design it end-to-end, you can still have RFCs, but you don't need anybody to manually submit them because the tools can do that at the appropriate point in the, if you want. And if your organization has the wherewithal to have the right tools, and so much the better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but th- there's a lot we can do with automation in the operations space. We've barely touched on the possibilities. Then I think that there's a lot more coming uh, when we start to realize some of the capabilities that, especially the new versions of service management tools, will have uh, yes. from from the ground up. I mean, they're going to have a lot of uh, capability, including uh, artificial intelligence and process automation and that are going to be built in. And I think that we need to be thinking about that that now. How, how do we automate? What do we automate? What are the outcomes we expect? Correct? Would I... Would you agree yeah. with that? So 20 years ago, I was recommending to my customers that they have a schedule for testing all of their availability um, mechanisms. You know, what happens when a disk fails out of a RAID set? What happens when a cluster node fails? What happens when a network link goes down? Because you don't want to find out those things aren't working when you need them. And then sometime after that, we saw things like Chaos Monkey and the whole family of that sort of thing come in at the dev side. Where are the ops people automating all the tests they need to run mm-hmm. to make sure that all of their countermeasures and their failure are working today, not last month? I, I was talking to somebody recently about automation who, who, who taught me something I'd never thought about before. They said, actually the first stage of automation is simply giving people rules to follow. Mm -hmm. And I thought, yeah, I'd never thought about that before, but you can have human driven automation that lets you play with experiment and learn with your automation before you even invest in any tools or, you know, the expensive bits. And I think that one of the most important skills coming down the road for people who do work in it is going to be, understanding process design and and getting their brains around how things should work and being able to put that into an automated system. I think more important than what I'd call process design, which tends to be very regimented, is something around systems design. And I mm. don't just mean I don't just mean design of IT solutions. I you could have, you know, incident management as a system, but it's got many, many disparate Actions, components, parts, people. Yeah, we're, that's... we're very, very bad at understanding the systems that we depend on. It seems to me, uh, and and I'm sure that you've seen this syndrome as well. Uh, organizations keep looking for you know the magic bullet or the silver bullet or whatever you want to call it. 
I find it really difficult when I am talking to people who know what the one solution to solve everybody's problem is. And Mm -hmm. I find it sometimes quite hard to continue being polite whilst they throw their solution (laughs) at every problem around them. I think there's two or three things I would say will help to solve most problems, but they're quite abstract things. There's common sense. There's (laughs) systems thinking. There's understanding of flow, feedback, experiment, and learning. These things will help with most situations, but they're very abstract things, and they're not mechanical. That's something that kind of drew me to DevOps right off the bat was all the things I think service management can learn from DevOps. I think there's a tremendous amount of of takeaway there. And as you say, you know, I think the ops side has to be more involved. So something else I learned about many, many, many years ago and never thought was relevant to what I do in IT because I'm, I'm a bit stupid sometimes and I don't think <laughs> things through was theory of constraints. Mm-hmm which has got some fabulous thinking tools for dealing with all sorts of the situations that we run into. Again, I wouldn't recommend it for every situation all of the time. And I think that at least partially accounts for the popularity of the Phoenix Project. And and I think a lot of people have started with the Phoenix Project, gone back and read Goldrat on Theory of Constraints. They've read The Goal and maybe some other literature and learn more about Theory of Constraints because uh, it's important for us. How do we convince people, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of this, that the one ring to bind them all type of thinking goes on at the high level of IT organizations, and even higher than that, well, you you need to put a system in place that fixes all this stuff. How do we manage up and convince people that there isn't one way to do it, that they need to learn to, and this goes right back to adopt and adapt, I think. How, how do they adopt um, different frameworks, methodologies, and you know, or, or just at the even at the process and procedure level, and then adapt those things to mm-hmm. particular needs of the organization? What what do you think is required to make the message that actually penetrates? It's hard. You can do one organization at a time, and if I can persuade, you know, one organization that I work with and then a few months later another one I might have persuaded 25 organizations by the end of my career which is not exactly what's needed here is it Mm. I do like the work we did on ITIL practitioner where we defined a set of guiding principles and I think we do need to talk to people more about guiding principles than about processes and activities because if we can, and where I've worked with organization, I said, look, let's focus on value. Let's design for experience. Let's keep it simple. They understand those principles. And I found that a very helpful way of getting them away from let's follow the process to how can we focus on value, which is a much more useful conversation. And that goes back to uh, what I was saying earlier about the simple rules approach, right? The, exactly. The guiding principles of, of the practitioner approach are very much that. Both know very well that organizations are depending more and more on technology and uh, therefore need to have some guiding principles. And I think the practitioner is very well organized to, to help out with that. 
And, and a set of principles like that can also help when you're trying to decide which bit of which framework to use for the particular thing, you, you know, to help you make a decision on an improvement plan. So we want to improve how we manage problems. Shall we go with this model or this model or that model? Well, look at which is going to create most value, which is most simple. It, they're helpful even for, at that level. And since we're talking about ITIL, which, as we know, is undergoing revision currently, uh, if I'm new to all this ITIL talk and want to understand the value of ITIL or learn more about ITIL, where should I start? So, yeah, one, one of the things that has never been helped with ITIL historically is the fact that it's been five big fat books. And to go out and read the books is quite a major undertaking and very few people do it. In fact, I've had people tell me what's in the books and I've known they're wrong because it's been a book that I wrote. <laughs> yes. um, but they won't be corrected. They know what's in the book because they read it on a blog somewhere. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think it is worth knowing about ITIL. I would recommend anybody do an ITIL foundation course, which is just an introduction to the language and the concepts. Don't, for crying out loud, go and try and implement anything after that. It's purely a way of getting you sheet dipped in familiarity that i would read the practitioner book which is the newest book it came out in 2015 and that's the one that describes the guiding principles and stuff like that which is a more systems approach way of thinking about things than the existing ITIL publications As but also were. there are things in those books that i wouldn't recommend now because they were right for when they were written Mm -hmm. um, you know, the world has evolved. And essentially, that's that's been the conventional, well, the unconventional wisdom of the people that I refer to as the best minds in service management all along, right? Yeah, exactly. And, including yourself. I think that one of the ways that service management and IT in general has at least tried or started to change focus a little bit has been uh, more of the emphasis on providing value to the business at a, as a whole and finding good ways to do that. Um, is that something that you see as a natural progression in the, the life of IT? So it's interesting. I, ha I had a look at Verism. Is that pronounced correctly? I don't know. V-E-R-I-S-M. Mm -hmm. yep. yep, Verism. Yep. I, I found it interesting that they consider services from the perspective of end-to-end -end services effectively delivered to external or paying customers and that they don't consider internal services to be services at all that's simply working with colleagues um for some organizations i think that's a very good approach for others i'm a little nervous i've worked in very big multinationals where the IT might as well have been outsourced. It was a completely separate function that reported in at a different country to diff with different goals, and it was delivering services. So I'm somewhere in a balanced position on this, that I think there are internal services that should be treated as services, but there are also times when you need to consider that you do share the same governance as the people in your own organization, and you should be working together towards shared goals rather than trying to deliver services regardless of which way round you do it though i really love the lean approach which says you've got to know how 
you are contributing to value creation for those paying or sponsoring the work that you do. You, you did pause on the word you have to know. And, and I think that's been a struggle for a lot of people in IT, hasn't it? I, I think that certainly I, I've seen it at the service desk level where people really don't have a good idea of what value they're contributing. Uh, they understand very well how they help the organization get on with its business by you know, recovering services for people or, or fixing hardware or you know, putting new uh, equipment and processes and, and systems in place, but they don't really understand how that contributes to the value overall. And, uh, and it's, that's a struggle. I see that even worse where you have technology silo teams. We have a storage team. And they do storage and they deliver the storage to an infrastructure team who delivers infrastructure to an applications team. And after that, it's their problem. Um, and when you sit and say, well, how is what you do creating value for a paying customer? They go, well, I'm doing a storage, aren't I? Mm -hmm. A lot of us for years said, well, I work in IT. I, I think that there's been a divide between business and IT on a lot of levels, as you say, you know, the service provider model, which has undergone withering criticism in recent years, uh, still exists. And maybe, just maybe, that's what some organizations want, need, and expect. I have seen some fabulous examples of good practice. Um, one organization I worked with did some analysis of customer and user feedback after incidents and discovered that they had some agents who were regularly getting really great feedback and others who weren't. And they went and had a look at what the difference was. And it turned out the ones getting great feedback were the ones they'd recruited from within their own organization who had experience of other business functions. Uh -huh. And based on that, they changed their service desk recruitment practices. And and another organization I worked in had a couple of big red boards up on the wall of the service desk, LED type stuff, that displayed two numbers. And they were both business metrics, nothing to do with IT. And they were up on the wall of the service desk. And I can't say what they were because it will give away who this was. But they were very, very definitely business metrics that the board would be talking about on a daily and a weekly basis. And the service desk watched these numbers as they changed, as they were working. And they knew damn well that anything they did that affected these numbers was a big deal. That's James Finister talks about the car company where he was responsible for some level of IT support, where the key business metric was that the number of cars that come off the end of the production line every minute. And again, everybody knew what the number was and everybody knew that was how they were being measured and that was what they were responsible for. So there is some very good practice about it. it we shouldn't get hung up on saying, oh, things are terrible and nobody does a good job in IT. One of the things that I talk about in, in reporting some of the research that we do here at HDI is that we see in, increases in incidents and increases in the number of organizations that have an increase in volume of contacts and a lot of them don't don't separate those between incidents and service requests 
So we, huh. we, we, we can only call them tickets. Uh, we don't know whether they're service requests or incidents. We do know that that in the organizations that do um, track how many service requests versus incidents they get, incidents outnumber service requests. They're a little bit more than half. Um, so we do see increases in, in, in those unplanned interruptions every year. But at the same time, uh, when we ask them, well, why is that in your organization? Most of the reason is they have more people, more systems, more devices, more of everything. And so that obviously leads to the fact that there's just more going on in the technological world and more demands that it operate. So interestingly, you mentioned something there, which you started me thinking of another space where I think we urgently need improvements in many organizations in IT service management, and that's metrics and reporting. My issue is that for too many organizations, the metrics have become the goals. Yes. Metrics are great for trend analysis, for triggering actions, but typically they make terrible goals. Um, There's an economist, a guy called Goodhart. I don't know if you've heard of Goodhart's law. Uh, I have heard of Goodhart's Law because you have written about Goodhart's Law. That's exactly how I know about it. Um, Basically, he said, when a metric becomes a goal, it ceases to be a useful metric. That's in the field of economics. And Mm -hmm. the reason it happens is because people distort their behavior to make the numbers look good. Mm -hmm. Governments do it all the time. I'm not going to give any examples because they're all far too politically loaded. (laughs) Um, In IT organizations, if you tell me that the service desk is going to be measured on the number of calls per agent per day it's a good thing to measure and to track and to understand but if you said it's a target you know exactly what's going to happen of course and i think the the primary one that i've railed against for a long period of time is is first contact resolution uh first call resolution yeah. where where it's a telephone dominant world because uh, the the responsible analysts will do pretty much anything they need to do to resolve that on the first try, even if they don't. <laughs> you and, know, and, and they will realize that doing good problem management will make their metrics get worse, so they won't be encouraged to do it. I, I used to think that satisfaction metrics would be quite a good way of measuring things until I saw one organization where each unit was measured in a very competitive way on their customer satisfaction metrics from an annual survey. So what behavior did you get? People were charted with, you must force your customer to mark nine or 10 out of 10. You, here's a budget for taking them out for a meal. Here's, I mean, it was just horrible. So, you know, even measuring customer satisfaction is not helpful if you don't do it for the right reasons in the right way. And, and I've written uh, exactly about this. I said the metric is not the goal. The metric is a milepost to help you measure progress towards your goal. This brings us all, all of this conversation, starting with uh, the, the literature that we've talked about and the ideas, the concepts that we've talked about. What is it that organizations, from your perspective, need to focus on in order to be successful IT organizations or better yet successful business organizations? Do you know, I I, I was about to say that's different for every organization, but I'm not going to play the consultants game. I'll give you the simple answer. Creating value for the paying customers. And by the paying customers, I mean the people who are sponsoring, they may not be paying directly. Um, 
if that is the focus of everything you do, you'll get it right. Here's an example. This is a, a technique I learned from a manager about 25 years ago. He was very wise and well before his time. And I went for my annual review the way you used to in those days. And he said to me, I have something I want you to do. He said, I want you at least once a day and preferably more often to just suddenly stop whatever you're doing and say to yourself, if the paying customers knew their money was going for me to do this, how would they feel? Mm-hmm. I've been doing that for 25 years. It's fabulous because quite often I say, why am I doing it? And I stop mm-hmm. and I go and do something more useful. That is absolutely priceless, priceless advice. And Well, Stuart, it has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, I'm so glad to talk to you uh, again and uh, hope to see you in person again soon. And I'm sure that I will. And thank you for your continued insights and your continued contributions to the industry. I really appreciate you and all you do. Thank you, Roy. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for listening to this episode of SpotCast. For more about HDI, visit us on the web at thinkhdi.com and see Support World for great content. I'm Roy Atkinson, and I'm looking forward to the next SpotCast with April Allen, also known as KnowledgeBird. Knowledge management is such an important part of today's organizations. Meanwhile, send us a tweet with the hashtag SpockCast, S-P-O-C-C-A-S-T. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is copyright 2018 by HDI. Until next time, take care. <laughs>